Monday was a letter of intent. And what we were needing was radio. Blog Talk Radio. This program has been made possible by Weatherby Asset Management. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest. Weatherby Asset Management is dedicated to providing exceptional wealth management services by forming partnerships built on trust, understanding, and thoughtful advice. For more than 20 years, they've been offering objective perspective, personalized planning, and sophisticated investment management to individual investors and families, as well as pension plans, foundations, and endowments. Contact them at www.weatherby.com. Weatherby Asset Management, located in San Francisco and New York City. Finally, a global program specifically for wealthy, philanthropic women who are humble, gracious leaders. Sylvia Global's host, Gil Sylvia, invites you to join her in these conversations with first ladies of nations, households, business, and communities. Trustworthy, live conversations with women from around the globe provides a place for your voice to connect with women of integrity, passion, and purpose. Now, here's your host, Gail Sylvia. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. You know, this is World Radio Week, and tomorrow is the focus of the focus is World Radio Day, a UNESCO um, initiative, partnering with radio broadcasts around the globe in order to share the messages of work that's being done in communities worldwide. We're Especially excited to have joining us today our special guest Deborah Santana. She is being featured on World Radio Day with the UN and UNESCO, and we thank her so much for being here on Sylvia Global. Deborah Santana is an author, philanthropist, and an advocate for peace and social justice. She is the mother of three extremely loved children. She is the author of her first memoir called Space Between the Stars, My Journey to an Open Heart, which was published in 2005. And an area of philanthropy um, that's extremely important to Deborah is the Daraja Academy in Africa. Deborah, thank you so much for being here today. How are you? Thank you, Gail, Sylvia. I am just thrilled and grateful and so excited to be speaking with you. Thank you so much. We feel the same way. You know, you and I had an opportunity to meet on January the 7th, 2010. And the reason it stands out, um, you know, in my mind so prominently is because um, that was the day I made a commitment. Well, leading up to that day, I made a commitment to go on an expedition or a learning journey in order to learn more about women who were supporting women and girls, and particularly women of diverse ethnic groups and women of African-American descent and Latinas 
who were doing big, bold philanthropy, and we met in San Francisco at the office, the headquarters for the Women's Funding Network, and not only you and I, I sense a connection around the work that we're doing and the importance of it um, in our calling and within our hearts, but also a spiritual connection in our um, ability to share the spiritual components of our lives that often aren't a part of conversation. So that's why that day is like a birthday for me, (laughs) January 7th. So talk to us about, you know, let's start with your with your book and the space between the stars, your journey to an open heart. Tell us about that and what prompted you to write your memoirs. Well, I was very busy in my life uh, raising three children, running a corporation, and running a nonprofit. And I had gone back to university to complete my BA because I had never done that when I was younger. I got married and went off to travel the world. So I had been back in school and raising the children, running the company, and just, as you can imagine, running on a million cylinders at all times. And then I actually, um, when I was in the process of earning my BA, that's when I was called in to become COO of our corporation. And so I stopped my education one more time. And I was so frustrated because it was elixir to me to be using my mind and being back in um, school because I always felt that I had not completed something. So I decided to take an autobiography class with Melba Beals, who um, is a wonderful, amazing author and wrote Warriors Don't Cry. Her um, life story of being part of the integration of Little Rock High in Arkansas. So I was able to study with her, and I was determined at that time that I was going to write a book and complete something. So that's how Space Between the Stars was born. And what happened as I began that journey was I began to make time for my creative life. So publishing that memoir and traveling around the United States Telling my story and meeting with people who had read it or not yet read it was just a highlight of my life. Did allowing time to write nourish your soul and um, help in ways beyond just getting words on a page? Well, it definitely did because I had really felt that I was a writer from when I was in the third grade. And I had always written and had written a lot of poetry, but because I had never um, been in a format or a forum where I completed something just for myself or for my gift or went into um, a creative writing program that was very rigorous, I actually had to take a lot of different workshops. But in those workshops, what I realized, and I studied a lot with Natalie Goldberg, went to Taos for many, many retreats while I was writing my memoir, I discovered that I actually did not believe in my voice as much as I needed to in order to put my work out into the world. So, yes, it fed my soul, and I began to develop techniques to release those parts of me into the world. How did you gain confidence in trusting your voice and finding your voice? Well, I think it was really working with Melba and working with Natalie, two very accomplished writers who knew that I was going to have to 
take time for myself. No matter I had three children, no matter I at the time had a husband who was very, very busy and traveled a lot, no matter that I was running a corporation and a foundation, no matter that my parents were aging and they were living next door to me and I was very, very connected to and involved with their lives, I still had to carve time out for me. And they believed that I could do that and that I should do that. When did you carve it? Where? Where in the course of the 24 hours of each day um, that we all have did you find time to carve it and how much time was the minimum amount of time you would allot in order to nourish your soul and your voice? I began by getting up very early in the morning and writing, because that's really my favorite time to be creative anyway. So I would write at 5 in the morning before the children got up. And then what I started doing was scheduling time in my calendar away from my work where I would take myself to a library at a local university and I would sit there for two hours and just write and do research. And I would carve it into my calendar. I would write it down. I'd put it on the staff calendar, and I would just put down I had an appointment. I didn't tell people what I was doing because I thought that that they would say, but this is more important. This over here, this meeting is more important. This is more important. So I actually very sneakily began to carve out the time in my day. How did you avoid not giving in to your own voice of saying something else was more important? I actually knew somehow that if I didn't do this, I would wither away because I just had given so much of myself to everything else. And Mm -hmm. it's not only something that women do, especially as mothers, and that we're sort of um, genetically predisposed to, perhaps. I'm not really sure about that. But I myself have, have a personality where I so care about how other people feel, and I so care that everyone's taken care of. So I really just had to tell myself that I was as important. And one of the books that Melba told me I had to read was um, the, oh gosh, I just forgot what it was. Um, It's The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Oh my gosh, Julia Cameron. She's been on the show a couple of times. And the reason that I, I just, had, and it's the same for you know inviting you to be here with us today. I want to share with the world the influences in my own life experience that inspired me, that sustained me, that encouraged me, that empowered me, you know, that made me smile and gave me strength. And the artist's way in Julia Cameron's work very early on was one of those treasures. Yeah, yes. and the she tells us to stop allowing other things to sabotage our creative lives. She tells us to take an artist's date. So I did those very rudimentary skill sets um, from her in order to carve time out of my own life for myself. And it worked. And I really believe that publishing my memoir set me on a global trajectory, not only of my philanthropy, but of my believing that we are here to give to our world. We're here to touch our world and do not settle for anything less. How did tell us where the trajectory took you and how you changed and made it a became a firm believer within yourself of not settling for anything less. When Space Between the Stars was published, 
I began to stand in my own light and in my own person. I really had been in my former spouse's shadow. I was married 33 years to a very wonderful man, but I was living in his shadow, and I was happy in his shadow. It didn't matter to me, but I think when one accepts that one is less than another human being, for whatever reason, even if it's a good reason, um, we tend to not shine. So my words going out into the world allowed me to shine on my own. And I had such a wonderful time on my book tour interacting with people and talking to people and laughing. I actually became a little comedian myself, um, laughing at my own life and enjoying interacting with humanity. But I think that publishing my words realized, um, showed me that I had something to live for and something to stand up for that was a little bit different than what I had been. And I began to look at the ways in which I had allowed my own life to be diminished in the shadow of my former husband's. And I just began to want more for myself. I wanted more in my marriage. I wanted more commitment. And I wasn't able to receive those things. So I left my marriage and um, I walked towards me. And in walking towards me, what I found was, wow, I think differently. I'm alive. I'm inspired. I I believe that I have gifts, and I want to exchange those gifts, like seeds from um, old cultures and seeds that are passed down. I wanted to nurture the seeds of earth in me and spread them around the world. What was, do you remember what, day one was like for you in making that that those decisions or was it just kind of a, a moment by moment and then eventually a cumulative step that you were found yourself taking to walk in your own life and to interact with humanity in a new way? You know, it began on a physical level. I began mm. to my heart would pound and I would feel very uncomfortable because I felt like I couldn't breathe. Mm. So it began on a physical level where I had to recognize and admit that I was not living in my full power. And then it moved to me trusting in spirit, making an absolute declaration of my faith in the almighty spirit, almighty goodness that I was meant to be where I was headed, not where I was standing. And so Mm -hmm. I had to trust and have tremendous faith that I knew I was doing something monumentally difficult because to walk away from a 33-year marriage, it was... I was married longer than I had not been. I'd been alive before I got married. Um, So I was so entrenched in my life, and I was a little bit afraid that I was striking out on something. I knew, I knew in every core, every part of my being, I knew that I was going to be fine and better. But there was a line I had to cross that was from my fear to my power. In crossing that line, how did it influence other those around you who meant the most to you? Did you get reactions such as, it's about time because they could see it in you before you saw it in yourself? Or did you get uh, mixed reactions such as, like, 
what are you doing? You know, how could you leave or change all of this that you've only known for the past 30-something years and, and embark on a new adventure? You know, aren't you afraid? You know, what kind of um, reactions did um, do you not only encounter personally, but would you encourage others to be able to respond to as they listen to what you're saying and make these decisions for themselves as well? The majority of the people around me were more afraid than I was. <laughs> so I had to be a warrior woman. I I knew what was right, but you know, um you know, my former spouse and I were we were an institution and um it was harder for everyone else than it was for me. I mean, people called me crying. People called me saying, don't do it. And I had to listen to my heart. So I, you know, I'm so beyond it now. It's been six years mm. I'm on my own. I am so grateful. I am so filled with this tremendous gratitude and light of my being in connection with the universal spirit. And that is something to shoot for. Isn't that the peace then that's within, you know, is the ability to have a gratitude and to just keep moving in the direction of of that calling and that light and listening to that inner voice because I can't help but wonder if not only that peace within ourselves is also the peace that others see that gives them strength and especially girls at the Daraja Academy. Yes, I agree. You know, when we live our own light and our own truth, people pick it up from the cells of our body. They pick it up mm-hmm. from our smiles. They pick it up from our energy. And so, yes, and, and that gave me my trajectory into starting my own nonprofit, which is Do a Little. And that phrase, Do a Little, came from something that Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, and he gave me permission to use it for my nonprofit. And he said, do your little bit of good wherever you are. It's those little bits put together that overwhelm our world. So Mm. I don't want people to think, well, I can only give if I have a million dollars. No, everyone can give something to overwhelm our world with goodness, with light, with truth, and with joy. I like that expression about overwhelm the world. (laughs) You know, that um, too often... Um, you know, we make the mistake of assuming, especially people who are in the public eye, whether it's public in this, you know, international hemisphere that you are in, or if it's public within our own immediate smaller communities, people often make, you know, assumptions that, well, gosh, I can't do what she does because I don't have what I perceive her to have, when the truth of the matter is it's doing something with what we have, no matter what amount that is, and doing it from the same place of gratitude and love that makes such a big difference in the world. And being in my own world, my husband and I always believe that if we're good stewards of the small things, then we'll be good stewards of even bigger things. And it's staying, up, staying true to that value, you know. Absolutely. Um, talk to us about how... You know your philanthropy, your philosophy toward philanthropy has evolved, and where you know it began. Well, my philosophy for philanthropy began when I was a child, and my parents 
um, were very connected to the church. My grandparents, my paternal grandparents, had started a Pentecostal church uh, in the Bay Area that was called Christ Holy Sanctified Church, and that's where we spent our Sundays. But we also, uh, my mom and I and my sister and I also attended a Lutheran church in our neighborhood, which was in San Francisco. So the, the philosophy was, of course, that to whom much is given, much is required, whatever you have, share with others. It was the Christ principles, and that's how we were raised. But um, we had something at the Pentecostal church that was called Pound Fridays, and at that time, what we would do would be if you had an extra cup of sugar or a pound of flour, you would take that to someone's doorstep and leave it with someone who didn't have as much. So I was raised with that philosophy of just do whatever you can. And there's someone over there, Sister Fields, who doesn't have um, eggs, so let's take her some eggs. Very simple philosophy, but that stayed with me my whole life. And my parents were very giving people, my mom especially. She would give away her shoes, anything, <laughs> to anyone she saw. Um, but my So that's sort of how I was raised. And then it grew into when we had the Milagro Foundation, which I started in 1998. The mission was to serve children in the areas of health, education, and the arts. And so in 2008, when I started my Do a Little nonprofit. My mission is and my passion is to serve women and girls in the areas of health, education, and happiness. And that's where I met um, my... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> so I I just started this little journey and I basically have, you know, I fund many organizations um, that support women and girls, but my passion is education. And probably that's because I continued my ed- education my whole life. I'm in a master's degree program now in women's spirituality in San Francisco. And I just believe that education is the road to freedom. So my passion being education, I became connected with the Daraja Academy in Nanyuki, Kenya, which is a free secondary boarding school for girls, girls who would not be able to get a high school education if they could not attend for free. You set up a donor-advised fund. I and did. How did, what, how did you go about making that decision and determining that that was, you know, the right philanthropic tool for you to use? Well, I, Milagro, which I had set up earlier in 1998, had been a 501c3, and there's a tremendous amount of work. There's a tremendous amount of uh, tax work. There's a tremendous amount of accounting and other um, sort of necessary parts that have to be attended to that I really didn't want to attend to anymore. <clears throat> and so it was suggested that I look at a donor-advised fund. And I had been on the board for community leadership at the San Francisco Foundation for three years. So I went and I looked at the San Francisco Foundation's donor-advised fund, and I just loved it. I it, I don't have to do any of that. They take care of all the paperwork, all the filing. They We have a system, and, and everything is approved. And all I have to do is fund. So, And then I'm connected with this amazing, amazing foundation that does so much amazing work in the Bay Area and has an, an incredible staff of brilliant people who support my efforts. What's the best support that they bring in your effort? 
their access to knowledge about organizations that need funding and their access to people who are doing life-changing work in the Mm -hmm. world. (laughs) And they celebrate that all the time. How do they celebrate it? Because I, what I really think is important here, and I, that connects so closely to my own heart and belief, is that your giving ties in with happiness. You know, our giving is connected with celebrating joy, you know, with being joyful and gratitude. And these are not, you know, common phrases associated with giving, you know, they're kind of desired outcomes that aren't normally a part of the discussion. And so happiness and celebration, how do they how do they celebrate that with you and the work that you do and the giving that you provide? Well, most importantly, the San Francisco Foundation is extremely diverse. Their board is diverse. They believe in diversity. They have a multicultural fellowship program that has really changed philanthropy and Mm. the public sector service. So they just have a dedication to the very things that I am dedicated to and I Mm. believe in. And they very much believe in women. We're having a a luncheon on March 6th that is – women changing the world. I spoke at the luncheon last year, and then there are two speakers this year who are incredible. So they provide this as a free service. We're inviting 200 people to come to this luncheon to hear women speak about leadership. They do that as a commitment every year. And then they have a community leadership awards program, which is how I actually became involved with the San Francisco Foundation many, many years ago, probably in, I don't know, 2001 or something, and they Mm -hmm. honor leaders in the Bay Area who have provided extraordinary ways to strengthen Bay Area communities, and I was on that board for three years. So they're just extremely involved in very important ways that impact our Bay Area communities. Talk to us about the, um, are they the ones that introduced you to the Daraja Uh, you know, the girls at the academy in Kenya? No, you know, they will introduce, but people find me, and I was um, the founders of Daraja, Jenny and Jason Doherty. Um, Jason was actually raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I was supporting a woman who has a program in Nairobi. Um, It used to be called Harambe Arts, and her name is Gloria Simino, and she's a wonderful, wonderful, amazing art healer, and she has a program in Nairobi for women in prison, teaching them yoga and art, and I had supported one of her programs when she was here in the Bay Area, teaching young children art, so she knew about me, I was funding one of her programs, and she told Jason about me, and he brought me a film about the girls on his computer. He walked into my office one day, and and he showed me this film of these young girls in Kenya who so wanted to attend school, and they were in primary schools, some of them out in the hinterlands that had mud floors. And he, he showed me this video. He was crying, I was crying, and I was hooked on Daraja. You were hooked. So <laughs> film is an important part of the, you know, it's very influential, obviously, you know, and very powerful. And you are 
also a supporter and youth film in the work that you do with the girls at the Raja Academy, and you're going to be celebrating that in an upcoming event in New York. Can you talk to us about that? The use yes. of film and power, you know, and, and your, you know, this wonderful project that you've been doing with the girls. They're older now. Yes. Well, I was very fortunate. I we uh, our family went to South Africa with artists for a new South Africa. Um, in 2006, and we went to um, celebrate with, we were invited and went to celebrate Archbishop Desmond Tutu's uh, 75th birthday. So when we went, I took a very dear friend of mine who's an Emmy Award-winning documentarian, Barbara Rick. I took her just to film our family because we were here we were with, I think there were 26 of us who went on this trip. And so she filmed us, and it was an amazing, amazing journey. Here we are going into Cape Town where we go to the Kailicha Township. We're seeing babies that are living with HIV AIDS. And this was what the funding that our family gave to Artists for New South Africa had been supporting. So we went into all these different places. And when we were finished, I started working on the film with Barbara, and we decided to make it into a documentary to serve Artists for New South Africa and to show the work that they've been doing in South Africa. We also were able to meet Nelson Mandela on that trip. So here we have this amazing footage of Nelson Mandela speaking to us. So that began my little filmmaking career, <laughs> and uh, we showed the film in different places. It won some awards, and here it was not even, it was an accidental documentary. So the first time I went to visit Daraja Academy in 2010, I took my dear friend Barbara Rick with me and her husband Jim Anderson as cameramen, and we wanted to make a film about this amazing school that came out of ashes in on 60 acres four hours north of Nairobi. So that's when we made the first film, Girls of Daraja, which won a jury prize at a couple of film festivals. But it tells a sweet, sweet story of these brilliant girls. So then Where I went back. Yes. Pardon? How do people access and see the films that you made? If you go to my website, DeborahSantana.com, I have a books, audio, and video page. And on that page, you can see my first documentary film, Girls of Daraja, as, I mean, my second, <laughs> Girls of Daraja, the first, which is Road to Inguavuma, which was the accidental documentary. And we will soon be premiering this third film, which is called School of My Dreams about the Daraja Academy in 2012. And the same girls? The same girls, yes. And you can see them, how they've grown and how mature they've become. And they have these these amazing international goals of attending universities and going back into their communities. And, yes, it's it's and they're short docs. They're just 15, 16 minutes. Are they on the... Are they on the are they holding the cameras in any segments of it? In the new film, which the new film is not uh, released yet because we're waiting to take it to these film festivals, yes, the girls are holding the camera, and they are so adorable. In fact, one of the girls, Maureen, who aspires to become a journalist, says, yes, I love this work, but the camera is so heavy. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. It's just adorable. Oh, you know, it's really exciting for me to hear this because one of the parts that's important of my life that's extremely important that we're doing with 
um, in Sylvia Global is developing girl journalists and having girls um, get, share with the world their perspective with, through their lens and in their voice with their images because mm-hmm. I think that young girls are, um, I think our youth in general, but our young girls are one of the most underutilized um, and misrepresented um, parts of our leadership model that we should be embracing and not only welcoming into leadership discussions, but actually paying very close attention to and nurturing them. And so this is very exciting for us to hear how this is being done through, you know, the Diraja Academy and that you've stayed with these girls and are staying with them along this the full journey of their education. It wasn't just... Um, you know, for a moment and an introduction in and out, but that you see and hear the value of their voice and the work of their life in order to, and also the inspiration I'm sure they provide to want to just stay in there with them, you know, and just continue oh, on. The love it's they more provide. The love, yeah. You know, when our family went to South Africa, um, I think it was around 2000 and, no, it was 1990. Eight. So it was a while ago, right after apartheid, and it was one of the most heart-opening, eye-opening experiences that we'll forever cherish. And I think for, I think I could say this on behalf of all of us, um, it was the ability to experience authentic joy and love and singing to welcome us, whether we went to someone's home individually or we went as a family unit or as a part of the group we were with, they would welcome us with song and these bright smiles in the midst of what we would consider extreme poverty or lower standards of living than, you know, we hear people complaining about, you know, conditions that don't even come close to what they're experiencing, especially those with HIV AIDS and those who are children, raising children because their parents had died from mm-hmm. HIV AIDS, but yet so open and so giving and so loving and welcoming that it just really helped to recalibrate life, you know, and what's really important and the power of work that and gifts that come out of a nation that often is perceived as being in such deep need that actually they're the ones that nourish us when we go, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because they have so much more to give. And to respect and honor that I think is such an important part of the philanthropy that you're doing and Artists for New South Africa and many, many others are doing, but you respect and honor them with such dignity, and it's just truly, it, it's recognizable in the work that you do. Thank you so much. I'm such a blessed person to be able to connect with so many people and to see the goodness. You know, I know the news would tell us that the world is so inundated with horror, but connecting with people tells me that the world is full of goodness. And yes. we are here to touch the world. We are here to connect and serve and grow and bless. And I'm just so grateful to know you because you are of the same ilk. And I want to 
hear more and be involved with your film program with these young women and girls. It's so exciting. (laughs) And I think the the joy for me is to, and the reason that I'm, you know, you and many others, I love connecting with you um, and sharing our stories with the world through Soviet Global is because our philosophy is to celebrate the good that is around us. And it's not to ignore the ugly and the bad and the discouraging and all of the rest, but not to place the emphasis there, but to know that even out of, and, and I learned this in Africa and in other, you know, in, in other parts of our own world here in the United States, you know, from the ashes can come incredible jewels, you know, and there can, and there is good when solutions that solve problems occur because there was a problem, then let's celebrate and acknowledge and amplify the voice and the images of the good that came forth from the ashes of that problem. And I find that more empowering and sharing those, you know, best practices and that message um, is a way to, to strengthen and resource others. Otherwise, it becomes, it's hard to move when you're trudging through grief and heaviness and sadness, you know, yeah. and despair and, the, you know, the ugly parts, which is, I think, um, where your films are so important, um, especially is because you bring a new image and such a wonderful new light and um, the spirituality piece um, shines through because we cannot do these things without acknowledging within ourselves the spirit of goodness that does exist in each of us. And to find that and to shine a light on that and to be drawn into that light of spiritual goodness. Uh, you know, you spoke earlier about your own upbringing in um, the church. And, you know, so often, well, for many of us um, who are African American and, and others, you know, the church in our communities that we grew up in were the place where we, you know, saw very simply done such powerful things around giving and you know you don't do it for reasons of you know self-proclamation or glorification you just do it because it's the right thing to do and that that's what we're called to do mm-hmm. and as we evolve in our own spiritual growth and our fellowships and resources then this word philanthropist enters the picture when did you find yourself transitioning from just doing good to being kind of quote-unquote labeled, now you qualify as a philanthropist? Right. Well, I don't really necessarily like that label, except for philanthropy, of course, just means love of humanity, love of humans. Yes. So yes. it's, it, But it sounds like such a big word. <clears throat> but I prefer to do my work in secret. I don't do Daraja work in secret because I want those girls to be celebrated and supported. Um, So I try to get as many people to notice them and become supporters of the school. But in terms of my own work in the world, I do believe that giving should be done in secret. Um, So that really, I don't know if there ever was a shift. I think I use my voice more now to speak about helping others just because, that's the world I'm in, and it's such a wonderful world. 
Um, but but Daraja Academy is really the only thing I fundraise for. Um, everything else I do just on my own terms and with my computer. <laughs> and um, I'm not out trying to make other people necessarily do what I do other than looking at these amazing 104 girls at this Daraja Academy. Are there... Um What's your your vision and your plan for what would you like to see the next step be, I should say, with the Daraja Academy and the next stage of life that these girls will graduate into? I am committed um, to support the Academy forever, but um, I the girls in the first graduating class, which will graduate in August, I am trying to work with the staff and with philanthropists here in the United States to try to get them college scholarships or to support them going forward to college because that is their dream. If they think they're not going to go to college, that first graduating class of 26 will just burst into tears. So that's my first um, goal. And um, so I'm working with the founders and the staff and the board of the Daraja Academy, which is the Carr Foundation here in the United States, to try to make that happen. They, we've just initiated um, a bridge program so that the first graduating class is going to stay on campus um, another few months to finalize college applications and get more skills and move forward because it was the very first class. But ultimately, um, one of my big goals for Daraja is to bring solar power to the campus. Right mm. now they have generators that they only are able to use from 6 to 10 p.m. and turn on at other special times. So there's no, real, there's no electricity at the school. There's no refrigeration. This school is such an amazing place. I mean, I go there and I don't need anything. I, there's no electricity. <laughs> I, I'm living in a beautiful little rendezvous with a cement floor, and it's, it's heaven because mm. they have built this loving environment. So I would love to bring solar power to that campus, and I'm looking for any help with that whatsoever. That's my um, closing question for you. How can we be supportive of you and the work that you do and the girls at Daraja Academy? Well, I would say anyone can send me a message if they want to become involved. Um, Through my part with Daraja, I have a fundraiser every year um, to raise funds for scholarships for the girls, and I usually have it early June, so if someone wants to attend, they can email me through my website or they can Facebook me um, on my Deborah Santana Facebook page. Other than that, um, you can go onto the Daraja Academy website and read about the school, get to meet some of the girls. They have, it's a very vibrant website, and you can see more. Watch my film on my website under my books and audio page, and just you'll be in love just like I'm in love. Is life is life good? Oh, life is superlative. <laughs> you know, I just I went in the direction of my dreams and in the direction of light and I continue to learn every single day. I mean, how can I not be happy? I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm involved with people with hearts like yours and I'm blessed. I'm so happy. I just love you so much. I look forward to seeing you again soon. And I really um, ask our listeners to um, follow Deborah Santana. Deborah, Deborah 
um, Santana.com is the website. And learn more about her also at sylviaglobal.com. Support the girls in Daraja. And I want to get more information about their graduation day. I'd love to be there with you, just celebrating with them. I just think it would be, um, it would just fill my heart with joy to be able to share with our audience. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This program has been made possible by Weatherby Asset Management. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest. Weatherby Asset Management is dedicated to providing exceptional wealth management services by forming partnerships built on trust, understanding, and thoughtful advice. For more than 20 years, they've been offering objective perspective, personalized planning, and sophisticated investment management to individual investors and families, as well as pension plans, foundations, and endowments. Contact them at www.weatherby.com. Weatherby Asset Management, located in San Francisco and New York City.